this is Pinky of Pinky and the Brain, the real star of Pinky and the Brain. When Brain and I are preparing to take over the world, I have myself a big pile of food pellets. I say, and then I watch Monsters, Madness and Magic because it makes me say, no, I really mean that. Goodbye. Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? We must harness the power of the moon and beckon the masses to listen to more monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> folks welcome to the monsters madness and magic podcast i'm your host justin here with a quick word before we dive in now in this episode angelique and myself chat with actor and comedian maurice lamarche about orson wells stand up voices pinky in the brain his chance encounter with the dalai lama and more as always thanks for listening and without further ado here you go What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt. Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Maurice, won't you take us back in time to when you were a youngster? Were you a book reader, fort builder, <laughs> troublemaker, or all of the above? I was something of a troublemaker, but never with malice. I always just wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. You know, <laughs> and mostly that involved some form of playing pretend, wanting to be a superhero, uh, whatever it is, or pretending that I was Soupy Sales and that I had Pookie, the lion puppet, following me around. And, you know, I just as a big imagination kid. I was not a voracious reader, but I was fascinated by words. I have, to this day, probably ADHD. I hate syndromizing everything, but you know, I have a version of that. Like, I, I, it's very hard for me to, even now, to do more than three pages because then I start going off into my own little world with what would I do with this story? Why did you do that? Blah, 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 blah. I probably should have written, except for the idea that the discipline of sitting still for six hours and staring at a. <laughs> Right. white computer screen and a flashing bar of you know the, where the words should be and i can't tolerate that whereas my writer friends many of whom have emmys uh, you know have have a tolerance for that so that's kind of where i got started and of course with all that pretending came voices and i love to pretend i was Beaky buzzard from the bugs bunny cartoons or do popeye and it's fascinating to me that here i was walking around pretending i was popeye one day my father told me that because he was in the navy and he came across his navy picture and he had a white sailor suit on and you know he was this young man and i and, and uh, i said daddy did you know popeye i was five you know and he said oh yes he was a good friend of mine he started explaining his great friendship with Popeye and how they would try to thwart old Bluto. And, you know, it's just 
musings of a five-year-old. <laughs> Today I'm in therapy because my dad lied to me about Popeye. What if he was also lying to me about God? Can't trust anything he says. <laughs> so Maurice, when you think back to, you know, maybe some TV shows or films that you grew up on that were formative, what comes to mind? Oh, uh, TV shows and films. Well, I mean, going so many, you know, Star Trek. William Shatner was an early hero of mine. <laughs> or at least Captain Kirk was. The Batman TV series of night, the 66 Batman. James Bond, I remember. Yeah, I remember going to see Dr. No when it was on. Strangely, a double bill with North to Alaska in 1964. I remember that, you know, I was in kindergarten. You know, so the James Bond series, very influential with me. I love science fiction. Saw 2001. I was old enough to understand it, but I love sci-fi. Those were some of my early influences, superheroes and sci-fi. Anything other than where I was, huh? <laughs> what I was doing. Huh? What about either of your parents? I know you mentioned your dad was in the Navy. Did, were either of them involved in the arts at all? Both of them made their small attempt at it. I remember went across my mother's book when she was trying to be a you know a photographer and shot photos of her, obviously trying to be an actor or an actress or a model. She's you know there with tub of margarine you know by standing by a stove in a kitchen set and my father but neither of them really made a go which is strange which is which is sad because my mother was a wonderful mimic and a wonderful storyteller she probably could have made something of herself if she applied herself further she was very fun all of her friends found her incredibly funny and she was my wife who's an actress uh, pointed something out i had a home video camera before that was you know something everybody had so you know it was quite as accustomed to being filmed as they are and I shot some video of my mom just us walking to the car in the middle of winter in Toronto on a visit I had with her. And she said, my God, your mother doesn't change for the camera. She just remains totally herself. She's completely and totally her the whole time as she talks to you. And she said, that's a quality that actors work years to be comfortable in front of a camera. And she has it. So she was a wonderful storyteller. And she did accents, impressions of her friends. She didn't do famous people. She would do the voices of her friends. My father was a broadcaster early on. In fact, he started at the same television station and at the same time as Alex Trebek and Peter Jennings. Wow. Uh, Peter Jennings wow. used to be the, the anchor of ABC News back in the, yeah. the 80s and 90s, early thousands. Well, the older I get, the more the more I feel I realize I have to explain the references from my, <laughs> you know, even my even my 30s and 40s to younger people than me. Glad you remember Peter Jennings. And of course, Trebek, you know, they all started at CJOHTV in uh, Ottawa, Canada. Jennings would do the news, Trebek would do the sports, and my dad would do the weather. And then at 6.30, during the commercial break, Jennings and Trebek would step out, and my father would just step over to the news desk and then do the same broadcast in French. And he'd do this, he'd do play all three parts because they were not quite as bilingual enough to carry off the French broadcast. So he would do the whole show, news, weather, and sports in French. And then he was off. And he, he just, I remember that one day he suddenly came home and said, Well, I'm making $200 a week as a pharmaceutical salesman. And that was apparently a huge sum of money and much more than he was making as a, a broadcaster. You know, and he was telling my mom, and I just happened to overhear it. Of course, that seemed like an astronomical sum to six year old me. <laughs> Two hundred dollars a week, and in 1964, I'm sure it was. Until that point, he was wanting to do TV. So I guess I come by it naturally. I, I uh, I'll see. I certainly, yeah, mm -hmm. certainly the voice thing. I mean, I've done some on camera, and in fact, I have an on camera movie out now. If I may plug it, only because I picked up like three best actor awards at festivals with this film. It's called Murder Anyone, mm -hmm. not Murder Anyone. That's the story of a really indiscriminate serial killer who will just murder anyone. This is Murder Anyone, and it's about with a question mark and a comment. 
And it's about two writers arguing about a neo-noir thriller that they're trying to write and, uh, you know, all the, all the fights they have with the characters. We end up seeing them on screen. I'm one of the two writers. I'm the more commercialized one. So I want to turn this thing that we're writing into a film and my more altruistic partner, Charlie, played by Charlie Howell, who was the playwright's actual writing partner. Gordon Bressack, who wrote most of a bulk of the Pinky in the Brain episodes of the classic series, who was a dear friend of mine. I'm playing a version of him. I'm playing mm. George. He originally mounted as a play here in town at the White Fire Theater, which is just down the street from where I live. Watch all the stalkers come out and start looking through my house. Um, but his son, James Cullen Bressack, turned it into a feature film and adapted it uh, after Gordon died. We shot it last year, and it's now available on Prime and iTunes and Vudu in the States and Google Play, iTunes. Anyway, so Murder Anyone is a funny film. It's one, it's one, it's it swept all the festivals, a lot of Best Picture awards for it. I picked up the Best Supporting at one, I picked up two Best Main Actors at another, and I guess I'm, I'm supposed to do some more on camera. That's the message I've been <laughs> in the universe. So is that a like a, a murder mystery whodunit type of deal? Yeah, it is, and it's also a, it's also an ode to the creative process. Mm. But yes, there's a there's a whole there's a bunch of twists and turns within it, and it gets more and more bizarre. Among other things, it's just a real ride, and you'll love it. Awesome! I want to check it you, out. You won't. You definitely won't walk away going, "Oh, I wasted I wasted nine bucks and eighty minutes of my life." You will laugh. <laughs> You know what's funny is my friend Mark asked me to ask you about that movie. So, oh good, you got to it before I could ask you. There you, go. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned explaining references because before you came in here, me and Angelique were just talking about you know Orson Welles, and obviously you were re- well known for your Orson Welles impression. But if you started out today with an Orson Welles impression, they'd be like, "Who the hell is Orson Welles? Why are you trying to sound like the Brain?" You know, it's just <laughs> it's just weird. <laughs> I have actually brought young people to Orson Welles' films inadvertently because they started with me as the brain. And then I've heard it more than once where like their 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 parents were watching Citizen Kane or the Magnificent Ambersons or Touch of Evil and they see this large man and they're going, That man talks like the brain and then they suddenly discover the world opens up to them as they discover the films of Wells, you know. So kind of goes in a weird. You being Orson Wells on the critic as well. I mean, yeah, that, cool. was, that was inspired. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, that was one of my one of my favorite segments on the critic, and and, and I actually during COVID, if those of you who follow me on Instagram, go down to you know I think it was April of COVID year, I decided to do Maurice LaMarche's Pajama Pants Theater. My first tip of the hat, and the only one because I just found it too depressing, was I had a full beard at the time. I had a COVID beard, and so I did. I recreated the, the rosebud frozen peas scene from the critic live action in my house. <laughs> Oh, my heart. My my son's girlfriend edited it, and it's a shot-by-shot recreation of the Rosebud Frozen piece, thanks to the critic. So, Maurice, if you had to, do you have a eureka moment that you can point to where your own interest in the arts were so, was sort of sparked, and you, you know, if you thought, well, that's what I got to do? You know, it's interesting you would ask that, because I feel like I thought about it the other day, and it hit me as a guy, yeah, that was it. That was it, and now it's now it's left me. I mean, I know in sixth grade I did in the Christmas pageant. I had a unique part. I was uh, the rest of the, the rest of the class sang, and because I had an ear made of tin, they gave me a speaking part. So I became the narrator 
of this little presentation that the uh, teacher had done. They grayed my hair and they gave me a smoking jacket and, and I sat in a fancy chair with a pipe. I was not hooked on the sound of applause then because it was an unusual presentation and I had a lot of memorization to do. I also did a school project where I uh, interacted with myself. I, I pre-recorded dialogue with with Hal, my science project was me talking to Hal about whatever the pro- whatever the, the project was, and so I had to time my presentation perfectly. So you know, sixth grade, what are you, eleven years old? Stuff gets kind of locked in then. And then I did the high school variety show, and I got a standing ovation for doing four minutes of just celebrities on the Ed Sullivan show, and just doing you know, I was Ed Sullivan, and I brought out three celebrities. That was it. They were on their feet because I didn't suck. You know, I was, the voices were kind of good. So I think at that point, that was like the tipping point where I went, I've got to feel this again. I've got to feel what this feels like as people get on their feet and clap as hard as they can. And it just washes over you in a high school auditorium. You know, it's easy pickings, of course. All you have to do is not suck in a high school variety <laughs> show. So, but it's like, I must have that again. So they gave me the drug early. <laughs> What was the first impression that you sort of perfected, I guess? I mean, when I was a kid, I, as I said, I used to walk to school doing Biggie Buzzard. But, you know, that that was not perfection. I was just a little, you know, five-year-old kid trying to desperate cry for attention. <laughs> but the first impression I ever did really well was Columbo, Peter Falk. And the show was, brand, you know, brand new on the air. And my junior high school teacher, Mr. Fraser, with whom I'm still in touch, actually, he was doing a very bad impersonation on the schoolyard for my classmates, my seventh grade classmates, these cute girls that I, you know, one of whom I had a crush on. And so I had to top him. So I walked in there and I just went, Mr. Fraser, sir, I'm sorry to bother you. There's been a murder around here. You're killing a Columbo impression. And... (laughs) And it came out my mouth and without any intention on my part of it being good or brilliant or anything it came out good or brilliant and that was when i sort of knew you know wow i can do this i can manipulate my voice to become other people that was followed quickly by a tony curtis impression i was watching a show called the persuaders with uh, roger moore future james bond you know and it was wonderful and i just found as i listened to tv i could ape and do things and manipulate my vocal cords my sinuses whatever it was it was needed to become anybody else but me. And that was probably part of a whole identity crisis I was going through uh, in my junior high school years, you know, but that's when I really knew I could do voices. So I know you got your start in comedy, technically. Did you ever have any theater or interest in theater or stage or did you just decide not to go that route? Well, it was a question of what presented itself. I mean, comedy, stand-up comedy to me was the most rewarding because um, it's me, the microphone stand, and the microphone. And the three of us together are responsible for every laugh or every boo or every snore or every bait of silence. And I don't get to blame anybody else. But I also don't have to give anybody else any credit. I always was one of those kids who didn't play particularly well with others. <laughs> so I've done a couple of couple of workshop nights, but one of them at the Amundsen for a play that, that you know was never quite mounted. And, you know, but theater itself, if given the chance, I would. I mean, I didn't think I would ever go back to film. And then suddenly in the last five years, I just said, say yes to anything, you know, And because a young film student asked me to do just two lines in a, in a future film. So I, I did. And I thought, well, that was a fun day on set. So say yes. So all of a sudden, all these requests came. As soon as I sort of gave myself permission to say yes, these young people just started giving me parts. And I did a, a zombie mafia comedy just before the pandemic called uh, Witness Infection. I, I loved that mafia. movie. 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. We had fun there. And, uh, you know, I, I come in at the very end, but they talk about my character all through the film. I play this big mafia boss who gets turned into a zombie, as everybody else does. That was a fun night. That was two nights shooting at 41 degrees. Call time was like midnight, and we'd shoot till four in the morning. <laughs> Freezing cold. All the all the shots were exteriors. And my last shot, I had to get bit on the head, and there had to be a, a gel pack full of fake blood, which was ice cold as it poured down my face. We only got one shot at it because they couldn't clean me up in time to go for a second shot before the sun came up. And they had one more shot to get where the stuntman goes in the drink. And that was a tough shot because it was 41 degrees. So welcome to show business. What? Can I leave show business? <laughs> So that was fine. I thought that might be fun. And then, then, then COVID hit. You know, I didn't get that many things. And then all of a sudden, James Colin Bressack comes along and asks me to play George, you know, a version of his dad. In, uh, and I've known James since he was four years old. So, I mean, that's, that's a reason he thought of me for it. He and his dad, Gordon, and, uh, and I were fast friends. Uh, we lost Gordon in 2017 to kidney disease, but hilariously funny guy and very perceptive writer. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but, you know, you're born in Toronto, then you moved to New York, yeah. then L.A. What's the catalyst there? Correcting, correcting, correcting. Oh, correct, correct. Never lived in New York. Never lived in New York. In fact, I, I've always felt that that might have been a tactical error on my part not to take a little time, a year or two. You know, of course, you, you never know how long you're going to be in a given place. I lived in the first uh, studio apartment that I had here in North Hollywood for six years. Everybody leaves their first apartment within six months. Uh, but no, I stayed there six years, because not because I couldn't afford it. I was making a rather good living in the last couple of years there. I just hate the idea of moving. If it wasn't for my darling wife coming along and saying, let's, let's move in together, I probably would still be in that little apartment. And we've moved since, of course, a couple of times. Yeah, born in Toronto, moved to Ottawa for a little while as a kid, moved to Timmins first, a little tiny mining town where my dad is originally from, and then Toronto, uh, Ottawa, and then back to Toronto. I was there from uh, second grade until I moved to Los Angeles in 1980, and I've been here ever since. But I always thought like two years or so in New York might have maybe a, a stronger comic, maybe mm. maybe honed my comedy chops a little more. Not that there's anything wrong with Canadian comic chops. I mean, there's a lot of you know, it's a very definite Canadian approach. It's a little drier. It's a little more uh, charactery, you know, character based rather than the, you know sharp barbs that you might find from the New York comic. But we got people to be proud of that came out of the Canadian comedy tradition. And so, you know, but but I always felt that there would have been at least better pizza as I uh, came <laughs> up the ranks of comedy. So how did the transition from comedy to voiceover work happen for you? It was just one of those things where I was at the comedy store. I was doing my act and uh, this very nice lady who was with the agency that I was with for personal appearance, a little, little place called the William Morris Agency. I don't know if you've heard of it. But I was there for... I was there for personal appearance in Variety Television, and this lady, very nice lady named Nina, Nina Nissenholz, came up to me. She was friends with my appearance agent, the late great Aaron Cohen, who really was my discoverer, along with a woman named Mary Downey, who was the talent coordinator on the evening of the improv show. And, but she put me together with Aaron, and Aaron had this tremendous belief in me as a stand-up comic. And uh, Aaron was one of the very first victims of AIDS before we even knew how to combat it, and we, we lost him in 1988. But he was that guy that had he had he lived and again, not to make this about me, but you know, had he lived, I think I'd be a I'd be a huge star by now. You know, when you've got somebody in your corner, to, it's a tremendous sadness that he's gone. Just as a guy, he was great, and he was. But anyway, he introduced me to Nina. Nina came out to see me within the store, and she said, "You know, with all those voices you do, you could probably do voiceover work." And I thought, "Well, I've always told that's a closed door." 
So I don't know, you know, but okay. If you want to send me out on stuff, sure, I'd be happy to go out. And sure enough, it was a year before I booked anything because, you know, it's a small community and it's not easy to break in. But once I got one thing, an episode of The Littles, that blossomed into an episode of Wolfman Jack's cartoon show, which then came to my first series, which was Inspector Gadget, where I played the chief in the second season. After they moved the show from Canada to here, they still got themselves another Canadian. And I was Chief Wimby, and I was, here's your assignment, Gadget. And, you know, it's just me and you doing a very exaggerated Walter Cronkite. <laughs> and then rolled right into Egon on the real Ghostbusters. And I haven't stopped working since. Do you remember that Ghostbusters gig being real huge at the time? Was it huge in relation to the film? It was going to be. I mean, the idea that they were making a cartoon series. I believe there was a guarantee of 86 episodes, you know, between the syndication package and the Saturday morning package. There was a lot riding on it, and we were told, don't do the people from the movie. Yet I got in the booth, and I just couldn't get past hearing Harold Ramis in my head. So I did my, my best Harold Ramis, because nothing else would come to me. As I looked at the sketch they had of Egon, even though they had changed it a bit, I did no idea but it was just a you know pencil test did my best Ramus and thought I'd just screwed the pooch and as I came out Michael Seagrove said all right you get to do an impression <laughs> and I didn't quite know what that meant but I by the time I got home I had already been signed I'd been booked to play Egon so I wanted to ask your first time meeting Pinky and yes <laughs> the day that I shall rue all the days of my mousy life oh you mean Rob Paulson <laughs> the wonderful human behind the character yes i got to meet rob first thing we ever did was an episode of the new adventures of johnny quest which i believe would have been probably around 1989 or so 1990 could have been 88 but it was he was haji and i i was i guessed it on one episode but I just really loved his energy even then. And then we ended up on a show called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And that's where I just, you know, discovered that his penchant for Python, Monty Python. And we both kind of came up the ranks with a love of British humor. So we would just, in between takes, we would just, you know, complete each other's sentences in Python, uh, the argument sketch, any kind of Python sketch that we could remember or scenes from the films. And we bonded over that stuff. It was kind of a, a happy, happy pairing we ended up as these two characters that become, you know, if not iconic, they're certainly iconic adjacent. Um, it's iconic. You can say that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know <laughs> to me, it's just work. You know, to me, it's just a job that I'm really happy doing that I have a wonderful time with, but I'm, I'm not part of the generation for whom it was any kind of phenomenon. And of course, I always look at SpongeBob as, you know, the brass ring. And, you know, while we, while we were popular, we're not, we're not SpongeBob. But I think we have our own audience and people enjoy us. But for folks my age, it was, it was the Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain being part of that huge ensemble short thing. I mean, that Animaniacs was where it was at. <laughs> oh, thank you, Angelique. That's so kind. Well, we were, you know, as I said, we, I, I think we appealed to a very intellectual segment of teen or tween population. So it was almost John Aston and Maurice LaMarche, you know, going back to Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. John was actually the uh, hero pick of day one of, of auditions when they were casting this big thing. It was, you know, coming to us from Steven Spielberg. He wanted and succeeded at creating a different cartoon universe than the Bugs Bunny-verse, mm -hmm. you know, which was the Warner Brothers classic-verse, because Tiny Toons was an extension of that. They were all the nieces and nephews and protégés of the classic characters. They all taught at Acme University. So this was a universe that did not mesh with that universe at all. And, you know, Yakko, Wacko, and Dot were, we didn't know, even know what kind of creatures they were. 
We just knew they lived in the water tower, but are they mice? No, not quite. No, are they puppies? No, not quite. The cats? You know, we don't know what the heck they are, <laughs> but they live in the water tower and they annoy everybody. At the end of day one, Aston was the hero pick for Pinky, and then the next day Rob comes in and does this inspired Cockney overbite thing, and that was the that was the pairing. That was and it was kind of kismet. I would have loved working with John. John and I are still friendly. We have the same birth date, March thirtieth, and so we uh, call each other. One of us will call the other every year on March thirtieth to say happy birthday. And he's going strong at like ninety three. So. Wow. Yeah. So for you specifically, was Pinky in the Brain a typical audition, right place, right time situation? We knew it was going to be a big deal, but I read for everything that day. I mean, they were carving out a half hour for each actor, and it was understood that if you were on Tiny Toons, you were getting you were getting first crack, first crack at the deal. We used to have a guy named Cal Worthington out here, and that was his. So he was one of those TV uh, car salesmen. He had his own car lot, and he'd be, I'll, be, I'll, I'll stand on my head to make you a deal. I'll give you first crack at the deal. And and so yeah, he got first crack at the deal of auditioning for Tiny Toons. You know, they opened it up to it was Spielberg. He was already the king of Hollywood, and he'd already had a home run with Tiny Toons. I knew I was, you know couldn't mess up and i had the very first audition of the day monday morning at 9 a.m monday morning 9 a.m zero hour 9 a.m i wasn't late i still struggle with that five minutes you know but hey it's los angeles where 10 minutes late isn't late at any rate i was there 15 minutes early and i read for absolutely every character on the show i read for yakko i read for wacko i read for all three of the good the the good feathers you know the pigeons you know and i came away with getting to be uh squid the ray liotta pigeon and apparently according to andrea romano they stopped looking for the brain after my audition so nobody else got to read for the brain i was the first and last actor to read for the brain they cast me on the spot then they just went around looking for a pinky that would go well with that Orson Welles voice which they had no they had no intention of casting Orson by that Orson Welles sound alike <laughs> and so well it's a well-worn tale but Brain is actually based on Tom Minton who is a writer at Warner Brothers Animation and who if you google him and look at his physical features you go oh yeah now I see the brain there okay but to me the furrowed brow the jolly cheeks I only saw Orson Welles there and in my hubris, I thought they'd created this character for me. And uh, so I just had all the confidence in the world as I read it. And the rest, as they say, is hopefully hopefully, it's history and the future. Because we, uh, we will be dropping the third and, for now, final season of Animaniacs. But we certainly will keep our fingers crossed for some other way to meet Pinky in the Brain in the future. So, yes, we will be dropping that this week on Hulu. So, 10 new episodes for Animaniacs uh, uh, heads to consume. I think it's our best season, actually, this new, this new patch. How did the, that revival happen? That happened because Steven Spielberg said, yeah, I think, you know what, right? let's do that. We <laughs> just speaks it and it comes yeah. into being, you know. <laughs> Let there be Animaniac, you know, when you have... Steven Spielberg walking into your office, you know, Mr. Hulu executive who was there the day he did it, and pitching the show. He went on the pitches. He wasn't just, he didn't just send, you know, Wellesley Wilde and, and crew out there. Steven went with. And for what I'm given to understand, he actually had all of our 8x10s. He had made it up alongside our characters. And he put them would put them on the coffee table and go, these are our leads. We don't mess with this. We want to give people back their childhoods. And if we're going to do that, we can't have it have a different voice. So all these people are still going strong, working professionals. And so Jess, Tress, Rob, and Mo are our, are our four leads. Now we can cast around that and anybody else you want, but it's got to be done. And that's that's huge when you got somebody that of that caliber in, in, in a class by himself backing you. Mm -hmm. So we were we were in. 
to hear these voices because like you say you know there are imitators never duplicators we know when yeah. when something is not right and and the fact that you were number one available and number two that they got you all back you know nostalgia bomb all over the yeah. place <laughs> no it was great the day we first went in to record was this hallelujah experience you know that we that we were here we were and we were reading new words that were officially sanctioned sanctioned by spielberg and warner brothers and in honor of the occasion, I actually wore a pinky T-shirt, and without without any knowledge uh, or aforementioning on my part, Rob came in in the brain T-shirt. So we each wore each other's characters to kind of support each other, but neither of us knew that's what we were doing. So it's kind of fun. And here we were doing our characters again, reading reading the script in a way that we never thought we'd do since 1998. It was it was great. It's been a great run. I would love for it to have gone on forever, but who knows? Maybe. Pinky and the Brain might get their own spinoff or Pinky and the Brain movie. These are things we can hope for. We can keep our fingers crossed that somewhere along the line, somebody, we're not done with these characters. There's fodder here. So I did speak with Rob a few months ago. Great guy. Uh, he mentioned he how, how you would come visit him when he was getting chemo treatments and that you guys would perform yeah. for the uh, cancer patients there. I just, I don't have a question. I just wanted to tell you that that's awesome. That's very cool of you to do because... My grandma well, passed from cancer last year while we, were, me and Rob oh, were talking sorry. about cancer. So that yeah. was just, that was great. Well, you know, the funny thing about it was that, first of all, I, you know, laughter is the best medicine, as Rob is fond of saying. I knew I, I had to go in and this is difficult stuff, you know, when, you, when you're getting chemo. I mean, yeah, they sit, you know, it's not like you're in a bed and they count and you immediately sink into the pillow. You're sitting in a chair, you're in your street clothes, but they hook you up to something. You have to sit there for three hours. Right. And while they put poison and i just thought let me go and just keep them busy keep them laughing because this is what the, rob and i can crack each other up 52 times a day you know just just by doing an accent doing a voice reacting to something of the set i thought let me, if i can do that you know it'll help keep his mind off of it and then you know i had the day off anyway i made sure i had wednesdays off every week going forward and just sat with him but the first time we did it, the beauty of performing is it's a great way of getting out of yourself and it gives you endorphins. I have had more, I can tell just from my own experience, there have been times where I'm really run down or I've had a cold or whatever and I go on stage if I'm doing a, you know, a performance of some sort or I get in the studio and we, you know, you do the, you do the, the work of bringing laughter to other people and you feel better by us sharing our humor with the staff and all of a sudden patients started coming around, you know, with their IVs on a, on a pole and we were just spritzing with them and everybody had a wonderful time before we knew it was time for Rob to have his, you know, the needle out and, and go home. The rough part didn't start for Rob until until the, after the last chemo treatment. Because I remember saying, hey, man, you got it all, all the way through. You look great. You didn't lose any hair. And he goes, yeah, I got one more radiation treatment, and then and then I'm done. And then that radiation treatment knocked him on his butt. Hmm. I mean, he was, he was we, from that point to, I can't remember how long it was. It must have been a year before we saw each other again. He's, he's got a place up in San Simeon, and he kind of went up there to recuperate. And part of it was because he was he had radioactivity in his body. He, he didn't want to risk his family or anything like that. They were told they had to literally not use the toilet he was using for a certain amount of time, you know, because even his, his uh, you know, his waste could be radioactive. So, so he, uh, we didn't see each other for months and months, but we would FaceTime with each other, and I just watched him get more and more gaunt, and it was a tough road back. He, he, he's now, you know, got the energy of somebody half my age, <laughs> you know, certainly... 
when we're at Comic Cons, man, he's on his feet. He's <laughs> talking to everybody. He's, he's doing the laying on of hands and you know healing people. And you know, I was just I'm sitting behind my dad. How you doing? Nice to see. You. Okay, I mean, I'm nicer than that, but you know, Rob <laughs> really gives everybody the, the full experience. And you know, and he's wiped by the end of the day. But his energy is amazing. I just love love the pieces. Yeah, when I spoke with him, he looked great in terms of physically. Yeah, he looks a lot better. Yeah. So I have a big note here to ask you, Maurice. Yes. All it says is, ask him about the Dalai Lama. One part of my story of my life that I, you know, I don't, I won't say I gloss over it, but I don't dwell on it, is that my father was murdered, and uh, and, and that that's the major stumbling block of my life was learning to live with that and carried a lot of uh, hatred towards the man who, and, and it's a tough thing to deal with. I can't say that I've, let me get to the end of the story. So the idea that this man had shot my father, a man I'd known all my life, he was at one point my father's best friend. And it sh he shot and killed my dad uh, right around just before my 28th birthday, 20, excuse me, 29th birthday. I was 28 at the time. And, you know, it sent me down, down a hole, a very deep hole of uh, alcohol and drugs and depression. You know, I got sober in 1989, but I'd always struggled with this. And the grief was real and, and overwhelmed me. And then the rage and anger. And I went to parole hearings and this person came up with parole. And that was in itself its own ordeal because here I had to be civilized in a man in a, in a room with a man who killed my dad. Anyway, one day, I've actually forgotten the date, but it was the same week that Saddam Hussein had been captured in that hole. I am on my way to Vancouver and I end up on the same plane with the Dalai Lama. And I'm in first class. And I'm the only person in first class that's not in a saffron robe. It's his whole entourage and me. And I'm preparing to write uh, another victim impact statement for this guy's fourth parole hearing, the murderer's fourth parole hearing. And I'm just out of words, and I'm sitting there with my laptop open, and I'm thinking, here you are on a plane with one of the great spiritual minds in the 20th century, and would it be great if you could talk to him and work it out, you know, work out, work out your some kind of peace. And a little voice in my head said, well, what do people do when they want to be Dalai Lama? They write a letter. All right, okay, so... I asked the uh, flight attendant for a piece of paper and a pen, and I'd say to myself, don't even write the salutation, your holiness. Just go right to it and then put the salutation at the end, because if anybody sees that you're writing the Dalai Lama, they're going to stop you. So I write to him, and I, I tell him, I say, uh, forgive this intrusion, your, holy, your holiness, but forgiveness is the reason I'm writing you today. I tell him the whole situation in the note, and at the end, I just sign him sincerely, Maurice LaMarche, the man in 4D. So I passed the letter to his secretary, who was a very dour MF, and uh, <laughs> I passed it to him. Hey, what, what? I just have a note for his holiness. If I can. Hey, note? What? See, I'll, I'll just give it to you, and if you could, if you could just pass it on to me. Nice. You give it. So he takes it. He's like the soup Nazi, except he's the... <laughs> You're not looking for soup. You're looking to talk to the reincarnation of the 14th foot of compassion. And so... I'm decided to continue out of the bathroom so that it just was like this thing I decided to do on the way to the, the can. Let me just drop off a note for someone this belt. <laughs> so, so I'm standing there waiting to go in because of the line, and uh, he, he, the secretary taps me on the shoulder. He goes, "He will see you now. He will see you now." They said, "You're kidding." And he went, "No, no kidding. He will see you now." So I go. And I sit and I find myself, first of all, he's got this old wizened monk next to him and they move him across the aisle 
to two empty seats, which then becomes clear to me that they bought those two seats so that nobody would sit across the aisle from the Dalai Lama and bother him. So, which I have now successfully done. <laughs> and he goes to the other, and I sit down, and the Dalai Lama stares over his glasses at me, and he smiles, this impish little smile. He says, your letter touched me very much. I said, it, it did? It was, yes, I related to your letter. I said, really, your holiness, how? Was, well, when the Chinese army, secret police, came into my country and my monastery, they tortured and killed my friends. They, I was spirited away, but they tortured and killed my friends to find out where I was. And I was very angry at Chinese army men. And I knew that if I was to be Dalai Lama, I could not continue with this anger. So I thought to myself, and he put out his, his arm like this, he said, here is Chinese army man's life. Hmm? Now, here at the wrist is where he kills. But back here, he is small infant. Little child, teenager, goes on first date, joins army, and here is where he kills. But here, rest of life, chance to become a good person again. And I said, so are you saying, Your Holiness, that I should, I should hate the sin and not the sinner? He goes, oh, buy, forgive, or I said, forgive the sin, the sinner but not the sin? He goes, no, buy, forgive, I do not mean forget. I will never forget what Chinese army men did to my family, to my friends. But you have a torture chamber for this man in your mind, do you not? A prison cell? You do terrible things to him in there. I go, yes, I do. Yes, I do. You must let him out to the prison of your mind. Picture him sitting there and then open the door and let him out. And I literally had that mental image of this person getting up off of a bench in the middle of my brain and walking out, out my temple. And I felt my shoulders drop and, and the nut not in my stomach relax and i said to him you know what you said about the chinese army man i said my son had just just told me about he said he was sitting in the back seat this means to strike it up a conversation with the dalai lama said, my son was sitting in the back seat and he was he said dad he was eight years old at the time it's tough to imagine saddam hussein as a little kid isn't it and i said why buddy because it was big scraggly beard and he goes no because just he just was once a little kid playing with his friends. And the Dalai Lama's face lit up. He laughed. He threw his head back and laughed. And he said, your son is very, very wise. Wise son. And he took my hand and he put his hand over my hand. The softest hands I've ever felt. And he said, I'm going to pray for you now. And he put, he put, my, he put his, my hand up to his head, said some, said some words in, in Mongolian. And I said, I thank you, your holiness. And I, I can't, I don't know what I can ever do to repay you, but I will pray for your strength and for the success of your mission. And I will uh, tell people what you've told me today. He says, then it is enough. And so that was, uh, that was my encounter with the Dalai Lama. So I've shared that with people who are struggling with forgiveness to give it a new definition because it doesn't mean to have the person who harmed you over Thanksgiving dinner. It just means just let them out of the prison of your mind because really you're the prisoner. Great story. That's yeah. awesome. I don't, know, I don't know. That makes you not believe in coincidences, you know? Yeah. There's a saying for that wise friends of mine have go to these meetings where people don't drink. <laughs> they go out <laughs> not drinking together and they say coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. So mm. uh, make of that what you will. That's awesome. Well, Maurice, I don't want to keep you all night here. So just to put a bow on everything, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Anything you can tell us about without getting in trouble? Yeah, that's. I hope I don't get in trouble because uh, right now I've got three projects that have come to a grinding halt. Putting the finishing touches on Disenchantment Season 5, and that's the final season. Animaniac Season 3, the final season, is ready to drop. We've just done 20 new episodes of Futurama, which we'll be working on in post for quite a while, but we expect to de debut those in the summer. 
but I'm hoping for, you know, a pickup on Futurama because right now I'm kind of in that in the hallway between the doors that have closed and the doors that are opening. So I would love to know there's more, uh, you know, what, what the next thing is to. Uh, I've got a lot of people encouraging me to go after some on camera after murder anyone. So we shall see. But it's as big a mystery to me as it is to you. <laughs> well, thank you, Maurice. I'll just say that, I'll just say that you know, I, 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 I haven't. I haven't stopped working since 1985, but for one little six-month period in, in uh, 2009, I think I've pretty much just kept kept it going. Hopefully, that'll go on to the day I grow. We hope I so. Just love working. <laughs> Thank you. This has been fantastic. Thank you so Thank much. You, Great to meet you both and spend time with you. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Maurice. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time monsters madness and magic (laughs) welcome to the night you think you know night demon then the night demon heavy metal podcast is for you step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.